This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hello, Dr. Oliphant. Hi. How are you? Good, how are you doing? Make sure to keep listening after the program to find out how to receive a free MP3 download from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Our guest today is Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Glenside, Pennsylvania. He's the author of a number of books and articles on the subject of defending the Christian faith, and we're delighted that he's joining us again for a second time, this time to speak on the topic of confessions and apologetics. So, Dr. Scott Oliphant, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Now, you've been here before on this program, and you have defined apologetics before, but we have some new listeners since then, and so I wondered if you could do it for us again. Could you just tell us really simply at the beginning, what is apologetics? Sure. Apologetics is a, a discipline uh, in which we train uh, ministers and others to defend the Christian faith. The word itself is a biblical word. Uh, you find it in First Peter 3.15, for example, and it's typically translated defense. Uh, so when we're talking about apologetics, we're talking about a defense of the Christian faith, which includes both um, the preaching of the gospel as we defend the faith uh, from the pulpit in our preaching, but also defending the faith in the context of unbelief and attacks that come against Christianity. Now, now I know that you're um, in, a, in a seminary that has a confessional commitment, you're in a denomination that has a confessional commitment, and, and I wondered how, uh, how does your apologetics change, or, or do you feel compelled to engage in apologetics differently because of your confessional commitments? And, and then if so, in what ways does that work itself out? Right. Well, I think the the short answer is yes. Um, what apologetics is in the way in which we teach it at Westminster is it's really an outgrowth of our theology. Um, the reason we're called Westminster Seminary is because the faculty, not the students, but the faculty all subscribe to the Westminster Confession as the best expression of the theology that we teach. Now, that doesn't mean the confession says everything, and it certainly doesn't mean the confession is inerrant, but it does mean that it's a unifying creed or confession that the faculty have and subscribe to voluntarily. We agree to that when we come on faculty, so that we um, teach the theology that's consistent with the confession and anything that is an outgrowth from what the confession teaches. So apologetics is a discipline that has to be rooted in some kind of theology, and in the context of Westminster, it's a discipline and a method that's rooted in the Reformed theology that is expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms. And, and I take it from your explanation that you see that as a strength, not a weakness. I think a lot of people would think of apologetics as defending um, just, I'll say just, mere Christianity or sort of the lowest common denominators of of. Orthodox belief, but it sounds like you think this robust theology actually strengthens your apologetic task. Yeah, that's exactly right, and um, there are a whole host of issues surrounding your your question, but um, just generally speaking, um, 
what we're interested in, what I'm interested in in teaching apologetics is a defense of the Christian faith and not, as is sometimes uh, done in apologetics, a defense of, of mere theism. Uh, we're not interested in turning people to theism because theism is no better than atheism unless it's Christian theism. So our, our theology roots and grounds and founds our apologetic and it informs our apologetic so that we start uh, self-consciously from the authority of Scripture when we're defending the Christian faith. We don't start with some philosophical abstract idea or some notion of uh, philosophy um, that uh, then could lead possibly to Christianity, but we begin with Christianity in our defense. Well, that that leads perfectly into my next question. I wanted to ask you about three distinctive features that we find in the early Protestant confessions and the Westminster Confession specifically. Uh, the doctrine of the scriptures, the doctrine of man and the fall and, and human depravity and the doctrine of salvation. And maybe we can go through those one by one, and we'll start with the scriptures, because you just talked about that. How does the how, how do your convictions about the scriptures, as they're expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and of course you could expand upon that as well, how, how do those inform your apologetic work? Right. Well, uh, I think I can focus it maybe a little bit um, on Westminster Confession 1-4, uh, Chapter 1, Section 4, which uh, speaks very uh, eloquently, concisely uh, of the authority of Scripture. And in that section, the uh, Confession is um, jealous to maintain what we call the self-authentication of Scripture. Now, what that means is that um, the Bible is uh, the Word of God either intrinsically, it has its authority intrinsically, or that authority is conferred on it from the outside. And what the uh, Westminster Confession was concerned to uh, delineate is that the authority of Scripture is intrinsic to itself. It's not conferred on Scripture by the church or by evidences that we uh, mount up to uh, confirm that the Bible is authoritative. And that's the case because, uh, partly because of the uh, implications of sola scriptura during the time of the Reformation, that if there's some authority outside of Scripture that confers authority on Scripture, then the authority conferring is actually the absolute authority or the most foundational authority, and that is the authority that is meant to be trusted. So when the Confession was written, it was written in the context of a polemic against a Roman Catholicism, which was teaching. Uh, and did teach at the Council of Trent, for example, uh, that the authority of Scripture has to be conferred by the church, which means that ultimately you're trusting the church rather than the authority of the Bible. And that's not just a uh, you know, pedantic theological uh, argument. What, what it means for the Reformers and for the Reformation and for me is that the authority of Scripture resides in the text itself. That is, it authenticates itself objectively, as the Word of God. That's the way that Scripture treats itself. That's the way that those who are uh, spoken of in Scripture, the prophets, the apostles, Jesus himself, that's the way that they understood the text of Scripture itself. So the Bible has to be its own authority if we're going to appeal to it as intrinsically containing the power of God. And it is that uh, by and through which the Spirit um, brings about uh, regeneration in people. So so one of the implications, it sounds like, would be that you're going to be using the Scriptures in your defense of the faith and, in right. your, and, and not 
trying to simply put those to one side and leave those as something for later. You're going to be actively using teaching of the teaching of scripture in, in making your case. That's right, and and I I I think um, we we wouldn't. We shouldn't do otherwise, and and I, and I tell students oftentimes uh, think about apologetics as a kind of premeditated evangelism. So there is premeditate. You think about um, the attacks that have come. You think about the world. Uh, you think about various aspects of uh, unbelief that are out there, and in the context of that, then. What are you going to do if you're interested, for example, in the proclamation of the gospel? You're not going to go somewhere outside of Scripture in order to try to make peace with the people you're speaking to and then later on say, oh, by the way, you have to repent. Um, instead, you start in your gospel um, proclamation with the authority of Scripture. The same has to be true in apologetics. We don't make a hard and fast distinction between evangelism and apologetics, except maybe the content, uh, some of the content that would um, be um, – uh, that would be viable in, in an apologetic encounter might not come into play in evangelism. But the same goal is in view, and that is that we want the truth of the gospel uh, to be proclaimed and, and to challenge uh, those who are in unbelief. And, and, and the only way to do that is by starting with what Scripture teaches. I, I want to move on to these other ones, but but if I could just ask one more question based on what you just said. What about mm-hmm. the accusation that then that's sort of a circular argument, that you're, you're using something uh, that you're trying to also demonstrate or defend, uh, and, that, and that then that becomes uh, unpersuasive and, and feels like a circular argument to the unbeliever. Right. Well, there are, there are circular uh, arguments that are set up uh, in such a way that they are and can be uh, fallacious, and there is um, a, a notion of circularity that is a fallacy. But the broader notion of circularity has been around at least since the time of Aristotle, where he was arguing and asserting that in order to uh, make any assertion or predication at all, you have to stand somewhere foundationally in order to predicate, in order to say something. Uh, for Aristotle, it was the laws of logic. That was he, that's what he was trying to uh, set forth. And for Christianity, um, we stand um, self-consciously on the authority of Scripture. Uh, so the the notion of circularity um, can be a fallacy, but in the way in which it's um, engaged in a Christian context, it's not a fallacy, but it's where we have to begin. I, I would just refer uh, readers to a discussion of John Owen, I think it's in volume 16 of his works, where he argues um, based on that very challenge of circularity because of his view of Sola Scriptura, he argues that it's actually uh, the Roman church, as he calls them, the papists who are uh, in a vicious, caught in a vicious circle because of their understanding of papal infallibility. So the, the point of that is that circularity is, is engaged in any argumentation uh, if the circularity is broad uh, broadly defined enough so that we're talking about the foundation on which we stand. That's what we do when we stand on Scripture. No, that, that that's very helpful because what you're saying is if, if defined broadly enough, it really applies to anyone and and, and, and everyone's, everyone has starting points. Exactly right, yeah. And you can't leave that starting point in order to argue. As a matter of fact, that starting point is supported more and more by the arguments that you give. And so it's that kind of quote-unquote circularity that everyone engages in. 
What about the doctrine of the fall and the effects of the fall on human beings? Um, what uh, obviously we we associate a particular understanding of the depravity of man with. Um, the Protestant Reformation and some of the post-Reformation sources like the Westminster Confession, how does that doctrine of the effects of the fall change the way you look at the uh, work of apologetics? Right. Yeah, that's that's a great question and a long discussion, but let me try to put it to you this way. I'm just trying to speak uh, briefly here, so uh, some, sometimes um, that can sound a bit abrupt, but I think you've got basically two ways of understanding apologetics. You can understand it from uh, the articulation of a Reformed theology, or you can understand it from the articulation of an Arminian theology. And again, there are nuances there, and I recognize that, but just to try to be um, brief here, on a reform in a reformed context, um, we recognize, as again, as the confession says, uh, that all of us are born uh, corrupt. Um, confession says, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil. Now, that's just what we mean by the effects of sin and total depravity. And if that's the case, uh, anything that we uh, say to one who is in that condition, let's use Paul's language, dead in trespasses and sins, anything that we say to those people, if they're true to their sinful principle, is going to be automatically uh, renegotiated and recontextualized in the context of their sinfulness. Uh, so we, they they don't have the means in and of themselves uh, to adopt and accept what we're saying to them. Now, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that uh, what, what, what we're saying always just bounces off and doesn't have an effect? No, of course not, because the truth of God always does have an effect. Uh, uh, the Scripture says it will not return to God void. It always accomplishes His purposes, so that we, when we speak the truth of God, and here I don't mean just simply Bible verses, although that's fine, but we're talking about God's truth, the whole counsel of God as it's given to us in biblical revelation, that contain, that truth of God contains the power of God, which the Spirit of God uses in His own sovereign way uh, to bring the Lord's people to Himself. So we, we speak of the corruption of sin and the depravity of of human beings, meaning that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And that means the only thing that can revive us, like Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, is the very Word of God Himself, which says, come forth, and then those who are dead come forth. So we we can't then um, assume that when we speak to someone uh, that the things that we say uh, are uh, agreed upon by both parties, because what sin does to us apart from Christ is it causes us to renegotiate, recontextualize everything that's said, so that we can un- or that we can understand it according to our sinful disposi- disposition, and therefore either redefine it or reject it altogether. So it's the power of God and the truth of God that actually brings the people of God to, to Himself. Well, and I think that also touches on the third uh, question I was going to ask along these lines, which is the doctrine of salvation. And and if you understand that to be true of of fallen human beings, and and if you understood understand salvation to to come in that way, then that that's going to change the way you will approach unbelievers. 
Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, I think, uh, you know, a fine example of this is, is used a, a good bit in, in all kinds of contexts of apologetics, but a fine example of this uh, is seen uh, when the Apostle Paul was at the Areopagus in Acts uh, 17. What he's doing there is he speaks to the Athenians, including the Epicureans and Stoics who were there. What he's doing is he is first telling them about the character of God. It's a fascinating presentation when you think about it, because there he is in the midst of unbelief. And he begins with some of what we think are some of the most difficult doctrines of who God is. He begins with God's aseity, God's sovereignty. Um, God doesn't need anything. He doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. He's established the boundaries of everyone. And in him, Paul says to this audience, in him, we all live and move and have our being. Now, what he's doing there is he's appealing to what these people deep down in their souls already know, because as Paul reminds us in Romans 1, all people know the true God truly, such that they will be, we will all be without excuse before God, because he gives in natural revelation knowledge of himself. Paul's appealing to that in, in, the, book of Act, in the book of Acts at Athens, as he, as he preaches at the Areopagus. But then in the end, what he does, and this is a fascinating thing, is he goes back to the very point that got him in trouble in the first place in the marketplace, and that is he was preaching, as they said, strange divinities because he was speaking of Jesus and the resurrection. So he moves uh, seamlessly from who God is uh, to the fact that God, this God commands all people everywhere to repent, and he commands that because the one who has risen from the dead will come back to judge. So there's this seamless movement from who God is to the reality of the gospel to the call to repentance because Paul recognizes that it's in that call to repentance that the Spirit of God will begin to change hearts. And so we see at the end of, uh, at the end of Paul's address, the Areopagus, Luke tells us uh, some people mocked him, so some people were not convinced at all. They were still mocking him about what he was saying. Some people wanted to hear more, so they weren't uh, convinced, but they were certainly curious. And then Luke tells us some people believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite, probably one of the men who sat on the council judging Paul's own speech at the Areopagus. So we have, we have people who believe, people who, were, who remain curious, and people who mocked and rejected. That's not a product of whether or not Paul was quote-unquote successful. That has to do with the sovereignty of the Spirit of God and applying the Word of God uh, to a certain people and changing hearts by virtue of the truth that Paul communicates. Last question. What are some books or resources that you'd recommend, um, maybe at different levels, if you could think about that, um, for approaching apologetics with these kinds of confessional convictions firmly in mind? Right. Well, um, I, I don't uh, don't like oftentimes uh, referring to my own stuff. No, no, recommend your own. If you don't, <laughs> I sounds, will. Sounds self-serving. But um, I, I wrote a, a book years ago that was meant just for um, – people in the pews without technical vocabulary and with, with uh, basically with uh, scriptural foundations called The Battle Belongs to the Lord. I, I would say that's one place to start. Uh, my colleague, uh, Bill Edgar, wrote Reasons of the Heart. That's another good place to start. Um, uh, let's see. I would say um, 
my book, Covenantal Apologetics, is, is a bit more technical. Maybe you could move from Battle Belongs to the Lord to Covenantal Apologetics. And then eventually, I think it's useful for people who really want to dive in uh, to some of the deeper matters um, to look at uh, Cornelius Van Til's works, uh, beginning perhaps um, with Defense of the Faith and uh, moving on to other aspects of what he's uh, interested in. His, his writing can be dense. Um, through PNR, um, I've annotated some of those. Dr. Edgar's annotated a couple of those. So there are explanations along the way, and I think they're much more readable now, even though still difficult. Uh, but uh, Dr. Van Til was a master at the application of Reformed theology to the discipline of apologetics. So I think the goal would be to, uh, to get to his works as soon as one is able to do that. Those are all great recommendations. I uh, appreciate them and appreciate your time. Once again, Dr. Elephant, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Jonathan. appreciate it. You've been listening to Theology on the Go, a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's Church. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.